Hey, it's Avishak, and you're listening to the Stop Being Confused About Health podcast, where our goal is to discover the deepest truths about health, bust myths, connect to nature, and figure out what kind of ice cream we're allowed to eat. So I hope your curiosity is as strong as my sweet tooth, because there are a ton of questions to be asking. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Metabolism. Metabolism is a topic which has been on my to-do list for a while, sadly, but that's why I'm really excited for the guest I have today who dissects metabolism on a level that just isn't well known. And that is unfortunate because most of the information you hear about metabolism may actually be metabolism suppressing. So my guest today is Kate Deering. She has studied health, fitness, and nutrition for 25 years she has worked as a trainer. She's a Czech certified coach, and she's the author of How to Heal Your Metabolism, which she wrote after healing her own metabolism from studying Ray Pete's work, Matt Stone's work, and many other notable researchers, which I'm going to ask her about because I'm curious. Um, so without further ado, welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So could you tell me a little bit about, just to summarize, how you came to the perspectives that you came to about metabolism? Because there, it takes something to get there. Well, I had to go, go through my own personal journey. Um, you know, I was in the health and fitness world. world. I was an athlete. Um, and I was basically had the principles of, you know, to get fit, you exercise a lot, you work harder, you work longer. And, of course, then to get lean, you cut calories to make yourself that lean, mean machine. And after so many years of that, um, I was starting to having a lot of negative effects happen to my body where using those principles wasn't exactly getting the results I was getting before. And so I started researching metabolism. Um, that's when I got into Dr. Ray Pete and understanding that pretty much everything I've been doing was suppressing the metabolism versus supporting it. And which is essentially probably what most people are doing and unknowingly doing it. Okay, great. So you worked as a trainer, as I read in your book. Uh, can, so can you tell me now, after all these years, this is something I want to start off this show with, because what I see over and over again is people getting influenced by all these ideas. So I, that's something I talk about is how to be more grounded. So do you have any tips for how do you let yourself digest health information without completely like losing yourself and getting wrapped up in an idea that might be damaging? Uh, that's a pretty complex and complicated question because there's so much information out there. And I think if, if you start really understanding human physiology better um, and understanding how the body works, then it's much easier for you to decide what things are actually good for you and what things are not. So when you start to understand that metabolism functions on energy and especially glucose, and that essentially runs the metabolic rate, and that's what your body prefers to run on. And then anything that basically is food-wise will help support me metabolic rate. It's basically the gasoline to your, your engine. And so that gives you the energy to do the things that you need to do. And anything that takes from that, whether it's stress or even exercise, is simply really not metabolic. It's taking away from the energy system versus adding to the energy system. So when you look at health and the principles that you want to do to support your system, you actually have to ask yourself, is this taking energy from me or is this giving me energy? 
And when you start looking at, at those things, you start to understand, you know, is this actually good for me in a way that it's supporting my health or is it just stressing my system? And, you know, it might be helping you with weight loss or with fat loss, but long term, is it actually supporting me getting healthier? Okay, great. Let's talk about that. So you said glucose is uh, more supportive of the metabolism. Could you elaborate on that? Right. So we're definitely in a world right now where it's very popular uh, for the ketogenic diet or um, to eat low carb. And so everybody's straining away from that theory, saying carbohydrates are bad for you. But when you understand human physiology, and we understand that that is the first line of energy that our body always uses, and it will continue to use that energy until certain circumstances come about. And those are usually things like starvation, fasting, or removing that complete macronutrient from your diet, like a ketogenic diet, is when we start using other resources as energy. So usually it's under stress when we start using other resources. And when we put ourselves in the stress state, that's never congruent with health. It can be congruent with quick fat loss or getting leaner or even getting fitter per se, but it's usually not congruent with actually supporting the body to give it the energy it, it needs to do everything it's supposed to be doing. Okay. So what do you think is some of the worst advice on metabolism that's being circulated right now? Um, I would say some things like do these high intensity exercises and that's going to increase your metabolic rate. Now, in a sense, it can make you burn more energy for that period of time. But what we're really wanting to do is improve, let's say, your basal metabolic rate, what your body's doing under rest and when it's trying to heal. And those kind of systems, by putting more stress on the system, yes, it increases the amount of energy during that period of time. But usually post that and going into the, the resting state, it actually slows the metabolic rate down. Okay, great. Let's back up a little bit just for viewers who don't understand this stuff. Could you define uh, what metabolism and the metabolic rate is? Well, metabolism is basically the sum of every metabolic process that is going on in your body right now. So it's, it's your hormonal system, digestive system, nervous system, building, muscular system, everything that's going on. And that's why we usually like to refer to it as the basal metabolic rate because it's what your body needs to function optimally at rest. Most people are working in a deficient state because they might have hormonal issues, they might have digestive issues, they might not be able to build muscle or they're gaining weight. And usually under that state, you're not in an optimal metabolic rate. Your metabolism basically works by utilizing glucose and then producing things like carbon dioxide, ATP or heat, and then water. And those are the basically waste products of a healthy metabolism. And when your body is suppressed or when the metabolism is suppressed, you produce less heat, less CO2, less water, which, you know, an easy way to test that is just take your temperature and find out basically where you're at. And what I find is most people, certainly people that are doing low carb or a lot of endurance activity their body temperature is around 95, 96 degrees. And without them understanding, that is not really a healthy state. Optimally, we're around 98.6. You also mentioned pulse rate being really important. So I think a lot of people believe having a lower rate, heart rate is healthier. And I think there's this idea that, you know, if you slow your heart rate down, you don't use it as much and therefore you live longer. 
Similarly, there's the idea if you have a lower body temperature, this can extend lifespan. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, to me, that doesn't make sense in a sense because, you know, your body is, is always turning over cells, it's always turning over. And optimally, when your body's in a healthy state, it turns over cells and it produces healthier cells. When it's not, and when it's in a lower metabolic state, the cells turn over, but not as healthy. So low temperature, right? You're in a cooler temperature. Your body's not able to produce enough energy and heat to do all the processes that it needs to do. Same thing with low pulse. Optimally, it should be about 75 to 90 beats a minute, not 45. Yet, yes, every fit endurance athlete has a very low pulse because their body's designed for efficiency. And it would be more optimal for them. I mean, you don't want to have a super high body temperature and pulse and try to run 26 miles because you're going to need to consume an exorbitant amount of calories. And, you know, your body won't be able to withstand that and get to the to the the quickness that you're looking for. So it goes through an adaptation process so that you can run faster and you don't need as much energy while you're doing the activity. So it would make sense for an athlete that's trying to run long distances to have a lower pulse and temp. That doesn't necessarily mean they're healthier. It just means they're fitter. So I have a question. So who out of all the researchers you've been studying under, because there's so many different ideas, and this is one reason why I kind of exist is try to and the confusion and all this stuff. Who right. made the biggest impact on these new ideas you have that you've had for a while? Dr. Ray Pete by far. Um, he's a, a doctor of biology and uh, physiology, and he has, if, you know, if you want to go into his research, it's a little bit complex. He has a lot of free research out there, but he basically studies the organism very differently and instead just not looking at short-term research about what things are happening he he truly understands the complexity of the human body and to say this is what a healthy human body does and anything that's done differently from that doesn't mean it's going to get any healthier meaning so much of the research that we do today is on unhealthy individuals we say hey you know people with alzheimer's work well with a lot of high fat diet Okay, well, that could be true. However, are you, do you have Alzheimer's? Does that mean you should be doing that kind of diet? Or someone with seizures does well with you know, being treated on a ketogenic diet. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily you as a healthy individual should be doing that as well. It's just saying certain things work for certain individuals. Doesn't mean that another, another way or another approach might work for them as well. It's just saying that this approach has worked for these people. You said that endurance athletes, they have a low body temperature and you yourself used to be an athlete and you worked really, yes. really hard and subscribed to this, you know, do more and hustle kind of mentality. What, so what level of exercise would you say is sustainable long-term? Cause you also said even, you know, HIIT probably isn't the most metabolic thing. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, to me, exercise is very individualized, so it will depend on the person and their health. So somebody that is in a healthy place and can withstand longer-term exercise or more intense exercise, and as long as their diet supports that, can do any of those modalities. You know, And as long as you're kind of monitoring your body, continually taking temp and pulse to make sure it's not starting to lower, I think that you could do anything. But for most people that are in a stressed state, which is most people, then they probably need to go back to the basics to allow their bodies to heal. So that could be something as simple as doing yoga, deep breathing, walking, getting into the sun, 
um, maybe doing some weight training with a good amount of rest. I mean, I will say this, weight training can be metabolic because it does help improve muscle size. When, when you have more muscle, you require more energy at rest. So that is something. But for some people, if they're in a super stressed state, taxing the system with a, a heavy uh, weight training workout is too neurologically uh, nervous system stressing them and they can't recover well. So again, it always has to come back to the individual. I personally will still do a long-term endurance exercise or activity each year <clears throat> that I train for. Um, and in the course of that time, I, my temp drops and my pulse drops. Um, but then I recover and get out of it. So, but for people that are always doing that all the time, they're never allowing the system to recover. They're just going to be in that chronic state. And, you know, and you can do it for a good amount of time. I did it for a good amount of time. And then, but at some point it will catch up to you. What kind of shifts in your health as well as your exercise capacity do you start to notice once you started changing your diet to a more pro-metabolic diet? Well, initially, because I wasn't quite sure what I was doing, um, <laughs> a lot of the shifts were too radical. Um, I kind of went through a hormonal spikes initially <clears throat> because consuming a lot more saturated. I don't, I don't think I had very much fat at all in my diet. I certainly didn't have a lot of carbohydrates. And all of a sudden, I'm adding tons of sugars in, saturated fat. So I went through a little mayhem. And I think that's one of the things I try to tell people is when you do shift whatever diet you're doing, go very slow because it, it will... Uh, too much too quickly is going to be stress to the system. But essentially over time, uh, my skin shifted, my skin looked better, my energy was better, my hormonal system was better. Um, I was able to put on muscle easier. I was able to actually work out a lot less with a lot of stress on my body and still maintain and not improve muscular uh, size. And, and so it was what I found essentially was I could do a lot less and get more out of it when I was supporting my body nutritionally better. So the basic premise of basically Ray Pete's dietary advice is to shift from low metabolic foods. Well, the foods in, in itself aren't low metabolic, but they can promote a lower metabolism to things like saturated fat and more, more sugar as well as salt. So I want to talk about what are some of the foods or types of diets that are really popular that you think people really need to understand probably isn't healthy at all? Um, you know, I, I always hate kind of bashing on other people's diets, but what I will say is that you need to be very careful when you take major macronutrients out of your diet. So if a certain diet is promoting a carbohydrate restriction, um, then you need to be wary of what that is actually is doing, you know, and becoming essentially a fat burner, which everyone's like, that's what we're meant to be. And like, we're actually not meant to be fat burners. That's why it's only utilized as a secondary resource as energy. And the same with ketones. It's used as a secondary resource once your body becomes under stress or you remove the primary source of energy, which is sugar, glucose. So be careful of those kind of diets, even though they might get you quick weight loss results. They do put your body under stress for a lot of people that are already in a uh, sick state and that could just put them over the edge, you know? So everyone has a different experience. You know, I mean, I can't say what is good for everybody. If you're in a healthy state, usually you can put yourself in that kind of diet approach and be okay for a while, you know, for a lot of them because they're removing things like a lot of processed foods and they might be removing grains and mm -hmm. other hard to digest foods. 
they're, they could be a step up from what you were doing. So it's always a good, better, best <clears throat> that, you know, where you were, if you were eating a crappy processed food, fast food diet, and you go on a ketogenic diet, it's going to be way healthier for you. Is it the best diet? Uh, not by my standards, I would say no. You know, you want to have a diet that's supportive nutritionally with tons of good, healthy carbohydrates and tons of nutrition. And that's where you're going to get those uh, nutritional bases from the carbohydrates. I'm really curious to see where people are going to go with this keto stuff, because I think we're just going to start gather more and more data as we see how people fare in the long term. So that's a great shift, actually, to talking about the thyroid, which is something you talk about a lot. Because there is this idea that a low-carb diet can cause problems with the thyroid, hypothyroidism. But then there's other people that say, you know, some people even say their hypothyroidism improved with the carnivore diet, which can just be due to removing anti-nutrients and stuff like that in their diet. So what are your thoughts on what some of the most common issues, common attacks on our thyroid are from a dietary and I guess overall lifestyle perspective? Rephrase that for me. What are the most common assaults to our thyroid right now as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned? Oh, that what we're consuming that are affecting us negatively? Mm -hmm. I would say the biggest front runner is probably the polyunsaturated fats. So I would say that's going to be your biggest adversary to proper thyroid function and gut function. Um, you know, they are an anti-nutrient. These are, these are all the liquid fats. If you don't know what they are, these are your canola oil, your vegetable oils, your seed oils, nut oils, cottonseed oil, vegetable oil. Um, these are basically cheap manufactured oils that we are using and as, and promoting them as heart healthy fats because they actually do have a cholesterol lowering effect, but they do this by suppressing the immune system, which is not what we want. We want things that support the immune system and the polyunsaturated fats have that opposite effect. But on short-term research, yes, they will show things like decreasing inflammation, again, suppressing your immune system, lowering cholesterol, suppressing your immune system. So, and because they're cheap, they're highly promoted and they're utilized in a lot of manufactured foods or even a lot of health foods use these oils. So, but they absolutely have negative effects on your thyroid, on your liver, in the gut, and you know that's why, if anything, people should take a big look at that and remove those oils and use more stable, saturated fats in their diet, especially in cooking. Yeah, I've heard this over and over again from the Ray Pete community, and I myself definitely avoid uh, PUFAs in their liquid form. I'm very skeptical, however, that PUFAs in the c- context of consuming a whole food is bad. So I'm curious, what do you know some more about the mechanisms between behind how PUFAs especially uh, linoleic acid, uh, alpha linoleic acid is omega-3, but that's still a PUFA. How do those things damage the thyroid? Well, we have to understand that all the liquid fats are unsaturated. So they have essentially many broken bonds in those. And because they're more volatile to heat or to air, then they basically can create a lot more free radicals in your system attacking your own system because you have a hot body. And if you you look at most oils or even the omega-3s or the flaxseed oils, where are they located? They're, you gotta go in the refrigerator section, they're in a dark bottle, you know, they're like, don't expose this to heat, don't expose it to air. But what are you doing as soon as you put it into your body? You know, it's exposing to really hot air and really hot energy. So there's a level of what is happening once it gets into your system. And because it has a suppressing effect, 
on your system, you know, your whole body is going to go into an anti-thyroid state. How do you think omega-3 fatty acids uh, improve mood then if they are inherently immunosuppressive? Well, I don't know if they do improve mood. I mean, if the research is saying that they do, I don't know if it is it a placebo effect. So I would actually have to look at what you're actually talking about that would say that this is improving mood. So I don't know. I yeah, would have to it's, yeah, because it's like one area. I'm actually just starting to research all of Ray Pete's theories. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's because the conventional research generally isn't there's always something missing, but there's a lot of lot of reports about the antidepressant effects of omega three. So you know, I'm I'm not sure myself. So I was just wondering if you knew about that. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about having a low thyroid and how that affects your hormones. So you talk about how that can decrease cholesterol conversion. Could you talk a little bit about that? How does that how does having a low thyroid function affect our hormonal health? Well, because thyroid is, is needed in the cholesterol, uh, basically conversion. So your T4, which is primarily the, the hormone that your thyroid produces, is the inactive for, form of thyroid. And for it to be utilized, it has to be converted, and it's converted in the liver to T3. And the T3 is more of the active form. So that's the, 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 the thyroid that your cells are going to use to produce energy. And it's also needed in the conversion factor of cholesterol. And that's why somebody that has high cholesterol can be a, a sign that you are in a hypothyroid state. So it's something that your doctor should look at before trying to promote statins on you and saying, hey, maybe we need to look at your thyroid because most likely what I've always seen, anyone that gets on thyroid medication or at least a T3, that will immediately lower their cholesterol into a healthier state. Okay, and you say that the liver is also needed for optimal thyroid function. How does that work? Production, because T4 is converted to T3 in the liver. So the liver produces most of the active, about 80% of your active thyroid is produced in the liver. So if your liver is bombarded by other chemicals, um, other things that you're consuming, drugs, so forth, you know, your liver basically has about 500 functions and uh, thyroid conversion is just one of those. But if your liver is backed up, it's not healthy for whatever reason, it's not converting, then, you know, it's not going to be a thyroid issue per se. Your thyroid could produce, be producing the, the right amount of T4, but the liver might not be converting it. So you always have to kind of look at that part of the equation as well. And that's another part that doctors don't tend to look at because they usually prescribe just a T4 only kind of thyroid medication, assuming that your liver will convert that. And that's why so many women get on a T4 or Synthroid and, you know, within six months or whatever, or immediately don't feel good. And in fact, they feel worse from taking some sort of thyroid medication. How does having a low thyroid also affect fertility? You said in your book, fertility is a huge industry, a $4 billion industry. So what advice do you have for women who are trying to conceive but are concerned about their thyroid health? Right, because again, thyroid is part of the conversion of cholesterol into your steroidal hormones. And one of those, of course, is progesterone, and that is needed for procreation, essentially. And you know, another thing that happens, and you see with a lot of women, is when you're under stress, stress is going to suppress thyroid function. So you're going to see high levels of cortisol and suppress thyroid, which is also going to also decrease 
your procreated hormones, testosterone, progesterone, even estrogen. And that's going to not lead for a woman to be able to get pregnant. So, you know, it's been interesting if you kind of watch the trends. The fertility industry has started with kind of the upswing of more women going back to work, having children later. You know, these women are far more stressed out today than they ever have been. In fact, everyone is far more stressed out. So the chances of getting pregnant, it puts so much more stress on the system. If your body's under a lot of stress, it doesn't want to procreate. You know, the, one, the number one thing your body wants to do is always survive. That's number one. And in, if it doesn't feel it's healthy enough to carry a baby, then it just isn't going to allow that process to happen. Do you recommend, uh, like other repeaters, taking pregnenolone? I personally don't. Um, I usually work 90% on food and lifestyle shifts. Um, there are some supplements that I would recommend. Um, I would recommend progesterone over pregnenolone. I see most people get a far better result with that one. Um, with men, it might be more pregnenolone. But ultimately, if you can get people to eat right and support their bodies with enough healthy sugars and other foods that I say are supportive, and then, you know, again, you have to decrease your stress or at least your attitude towards it. Because if you are, you know, I can tell everyone, I go, good nutrition is like wearing a bulletproof vest. However, if you continue to go out in the middle of the war zone every single day, it's only going to help you so much. So you have to take a big look at your life and see how can I reduce the amount of stress on my system so that I can allow it to, to be fertile or whatever it is that you're looking to do. So as far as healthy sugars, uh, this is something I've been, I've been eating more sugar over the past several months. But what about the argument that, you know, if you eat too much sugar, you're not getting enough of other nutrients and it requires B vitamins and stuff to metabolize. How, how do you go about uh, eating and recommending more healthy sugars? I mean, what is a lot of Ray Peters recommend white sugar. So what, what is a healthy sugar to you? Right. I mean, and that is totally a secondary food if other ones are not available. So healthy sugars would be ripe fruits. Um, that's going to be your, your main source. Fruits and roots are usually the big ones. So that would be potatoes, cooked sweet potatoes, um, your sweet vegetables, zucchini, squash, pumpkin. I mean, and then all your fruits, essentially, as long as you can tolerate them. And then, you know, another one that's highly recommended is pulp-free orange juice because it's just an easy, accessible sugar that can get into your system that's available all year round. The other thing that is recommended is dairy. Dairy has a good amount of sugar in it. Um, it's that's a whole nother topic in itself because I know a lot of people can't tolerate it very well. But you know that could be something that's within you. It might not be the dairy itself. It might just be that your gut can't handle it, and there's ways around to fix that. But those are the primary ones. You know, white sugar can be used. I mean, I in minimal. You know, or if other resources aren't available. I mean, we always have to understand if you go into a hospital and you are dehydrated or sick. The first things that they're going to give you is a solution of saline and sugar, so salt water. That's going to keep you alive. They're not going to give you a bag of fat or some protein. You know, those are not things that are helping you stay alive. It's always going to be sugar and salt. So those are things that your body needs to regulate itself. And you know, we've gotten off track because so many people uh, consume processed sugars in excess. And then we say, hey, it's the sugar's the problem, when we really have to be looking at other culprits. And we also have to understand in excess, anything can be bad for you. 
you know, we just have to find what the mediums are that we can help support you um, versus remove it completely and say, you know, shouldn't have this at all, which is completely untrue. It's interesting that a lot of what you just said has so much in common with dietary advice that I think everyone could agree with. Um, you know, there are natural sugars in a lot of foods that have many healing properties for the thyroid. So just one more question on sugar. How could eating sugar, it's gotten such a bad rap, how could eating sugar actually improve your basal metabolic rate and thyroid function? Well, sugar is a combination of fructose and glucose. And essentially, everything that goes into your system is essentially going to easily usually convert into glucose. Fructose is processed a little differently through your liver, but it's all basically regulating your blood sugar. And by having a, a stable blood sugar, your body likes to stay in homeostasis and stays out of stress. When you get into stress is when you have blood sugar dysregulations and you have an abundance of stress hormones increase solely to keep you alive because if your blood sugar drops, stress hormones rise to break down tissue to regulate you. So when you have a constant state of healthy sugars in your system, and then now I don't recommend people to just consume copious amounts of sugars, juice by itself, it does need to be balanced so that you don't have this dysregulation. So usually, you know, there is some sort of combination of proteins and fats with all your sugars, and that just helps it get into your system more on a stable basis. But maintaining a healthy blood sugar and allowing your body to utilize sugars because, again, what we do know is sugar and glucose consumption is going to produce the most ATP, the most heat, the most carbon dioxide, and the most water in cellular respiration. More than fats or, well, proteins, what we also know is proteins can break down into sugar, but that's a whole nother ball game, and they usually can produce you know, negative uh, waste products in, in that kind of um, process. So again, we use sugars because they're the least amount of detriment to your system, producing the best kind of output. Right. The, this is something I'm going to have to clarify in a future video because I just read about this, I think a couple of weeks ago, but uh, the metabolism of glucose produces more phosphate per ATP compared to fat. And that could be really important talking about this. So I'm glad you clarified that, you know, sugar consumption has to come in a balance because I've, I've seen so many Ray Peters just going like a really high sugar diet and then they gain weight and they talk about how it's not working. So it, I, I'm glad you clarified that. So just uh, how do we understand if what we're doing is suppressing our metabolism, say exercise, for example, I just want to cover any clear up any possible fear people might have about exercise. So right. myself, for example, this is something I've also been doing is exercising a lot less. I actually don't go to the gym anymore. I only work out outdoors. But I've also found that I do some heavy lifting when I work out and I'm trying to figure out how do I tell if it's healthy. And so far, I just base it off of intuition. So when I do these workouts, I don't feel, you know, those bloodshot eyes. I don't feel uh, tired and drained afterwards. I actually feel pretty good. So do you have any recommendations for how to tell? if you are doing something metabolically suppressive? Well, one way is, is exactly how you are kind of now analyzing yourself is how do I feel? If you feel completely drained and beat up after your workout, it was probably too much. Exercise should make you feel better. Um, another way to assess it is, again, by using temperature and pulse. So, you know, in, when you are exercising, you're going to get hotter. So wait about 20 to 30 minutes post-exercise. Take your temp and 
prior to the workout and then post 20 to 30 minutes and see if your temp impulse dropped. If you tanked, it was too much for your system. If you can regulate after 20 and 30 minutes, then you were good. It was enough. You're fine. You know, and so that's also saying for some, you know, make sure you're eating supportively because if you eat enough prior to the workout, you know, some people need to sip on something during the workout and then post-workout consume something else. And then again, 20 to 30 minutes, if you're, if you're either maintained or a little bit warmer, great. That was a good, good workout. But I mean, I meet so many people, they're like, I took it and I tanked two degrees. I'm like, okay, too much. Because that, that exercise program just tanked your metabolism. And so it might take you six hours to recover. And that's not what we want to do. That's really interesting. What if you're in a, like a really high stress state after your exercise and you have tons of adrenaline cortisol in your system? Could that, can that keep your temperature and pulse rate falsely? Well, I don't want to say falsely, but elevated? Correct. Yes. And that's why I usually say wait 20 to 30 minutes and also consume some sort of protein and sugar beverage or food afterwards because sugar and salt will always lower the stress hormones. Stress hormones are rising because your body needs more energy. And if it's not there and you don't have it stored, it's going to use other resources. So adrenaline is going to rise to pull glycogen out of the tissue, and then cortisol is going to rise to break down your own tissue, and that includes muscle tissue, connective, your thymus gland. So that's why those things are elevated. And what sugar does, because if it's looking for more energy, the sugar you just consume will downregulate those hormones. So if you are getting a false read, you know, you're like, hey, I'm good, I'm hot, and then you consume food and you drop then you knew that was a false read. And then the true state is going to show up post consumption of sugar salt. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, th I think it's really important for people to realize what you said about the saline, that stuff is life saving. I've, I've mentioned that before, but you need salt and sugar in your bloodstream. It's anti-stress. And that brings me to a very important question here. What level of stress is healthy? Clearly it's there for a reason. So you seem right. to be suggesting that Anytime we're stressed, it's bad. Uh, what, so is stress inherently bad? What level of stress do we need for optimal uh, health? Right. And again, I think that's all based on the person. I mean, they have eustress, and that is stress that is good for your system, that helps you grow. I mean, I think we all need a certain amount of system for our own growth and to better ourselves. Um, but too much for somebody can be the optimal amount for somebody else. And I think a lot has to do with just your attitude towards it, what you think you can handle, what you can manage. If you feel healthy and you can work 12-hour days and you can still work out and still maintain healthy temp and pulse, sleep well, and so forth, then you're fine. However, if you are in an unhealthy state, you know, working four hours a day might be too much and getting outside and walking 20 minutes is all you can handle. So it's all very person, you know, and the way to monitor that is how do you feel? How are you sleeping? What does your energy feel like? What is your temp and pulse throughout the day? You know, and those things are going to be the information that comes back to you so that you can see, am I overdoing it or am I not? That, that sounds great. Do you have any, uh, I think we covered a lot here, so I think we can conclude. Do you have any final closing thoughts for people on how to improve their metabolism? What I say to people, you know, if it's not something that they can work with me, the best way to, for you to regulate and monitor yourself is one of them is utilizing a food log. Um, there's a free app called chronometer.com. You can go on and start monitoring and, and, and recording your food. 
and then, you know, kind of marking in, I usually say, you know, at least two to three times a day, 20 minutes post meals. And when you wake up, take your temp and pulse. And that's a good way to see if what you're doing is working for you. So you might start taking it and go, oh my God, I'm at 96 degrees and 50 pulls. And as you progress into your eating, you know, and usually what we do with people that are at low, you know, in that state is we slowly start implementing adding more carbohydrates and calories into their diet, you know, depending on where they are. And then allowing their body to rest, so they start utilizing the energy better. And then what we see start happening is that their temp and pulse start improving and they start to feel like they have more energy and their sleep starts improving. But you, you have to have that feedback system. I make anyone that works with me log because that's the only way we can see if what they're doing is working for them. But it's something simple that somebody can do for themselves um, and monitor themselves by using that kind of feedback system. What is, uh, I guess, the right body temperature for people? The what they say, right? They're all basing on averages, but 98.6, 98.8 are is a great healthy uh metabolism, which is about 37 degrees Celsius. You should wake up a little bit cooler, so about 97.8. So it kind of works like a bell curve. You're going to wake up cooler, you're going to peak around lunch and stay warm, and then at dinner time or post-dinner time, you'll start cooling down a little bit as you get ready for bed. Okay, awesome. That was a lot of information. That That is great. Thank you. Where can people find uh, find out more about you? Well, they can go to my website. It's katedeering.com. Um, but where I, I hang out the most is on Facebook. So it's Kate Deering Fitness. And I have a Facebook page that I post on daily. And there's always a conversation going on about that. There's tons of free information there. Um, and of course, if they want to buy my book, it's on Amazon. It's How to Heal Your Metabolism. And that gives you the biggest overview of everything that we've been talking about and will really allow people to understand their bodies better. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed Thanks. that podcast. Um, all these links will be available in the show notes once this is up on the blog. So thanks for listening, guys. We will talk to you next time. Thank you.